Welcome to another episode of We Don't Die, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. When we aren't afraid of death, we are less afraid of life. From these episodes, I aim for all of us to take more risks in life, go after our dreams, have great relationships, and some joy in the process. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international bestseller, We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Today on our show, we have Pam Kircher. Pam is a retired holistic family doctor and hospice physician. Her near-death experience during an episode of meningitis at the age of six had a huge impact on how she has lived her life and formed her ideas of life after death. In addition to being a doctor, she has written a book called Love is the Link. A hospice doctor shares her experience of near-death and dying. And she's given many talks on near-death experiences and death and dying. For the last 15 years, Pam's interest has been in Tai Chi for health and has led her to teach over 100 instructor workshops and educate the public and health care providers about the benefits of Tai Chi. Three years ago, she studied transformational hypnotherapy and has used it to help people get in touch with deeper parts of themselves, including past lives and the life between lives. Now, at the young age of 70, she is exploring living a quiet life in nature in Colorado with personal meditation and Tai Chi and occasional sessions of transformational hypnotherapy. Pam Kirscher, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. And I took a quick peek at your website, pamkircher.com, and I'll share with the listener a little bit more about that later. And you are just one extraordinary woman who's got so much more behind her than just the paragraph I just read. Would you? Thank you. Yo, yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're in Colorado right now. Is it a bright, sunshiny day? Uh, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> it is here in Massachusetts. What What do you have when you... I in Colorado. In, I live in southwest Colorado, and it's almost always sunny. But we are getting the aftermath of that last um, um, uh, hurricane. So right now it's cloudy, uh, and, but the, the summer colors are beautiful. Oh. Uh, the fall colors of the yellows and the oranges, they're just magnificent. Yeah, that's my favorite time of the year when I can see the, the leaves change, reminding us that everything changes. So a little bit about you. I'm very intrigued about um, that you had a near-death experience at a very young age. Would you take us back to that and what you remember? Yes, I will, uh, because I think it does have a huge bearing on my attitude towards life after death. Right. And I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about that experience. Um, I, was, I had just turned six years old, and um, I started off with a sore throat that turned into a headache and the dizziness and the stiff neck of meningitis over a couple of days. In those days so long ago, um, they, people didn't go to the emergency room easily. We waited till Monday morning to go to the doctor. Wow. And at that point, he said, I'm not sure she's going to live or die. Oh, my. And uh, that gave me a shot of penicillin. And um, somewhere in the middle of all of this, and I don't know exactly the moment of it, but I remember lying in bed and being in the excruciating pain of meningitis. Um, and then suddenly being outside of my body in the corner of the room, in the upper corner of the room, and just suddenly feeling the essence of myself. And it was not surprising. It was simply wonderful and natural to, to feel that essence of myself. And I felt myself surrounded by God in just this place of 
perfect peace. And I, I knew in that moment that this was who I truly was. This was who I was before I came to Earth, and it was who I would be when I went home. Wow. Um, and that it, at my best, it would be who I remembered I was during this lifetime on Earth. So it was that moment that I really felt that expanse of time. And uh, I had no, uh, that, that was the short experience that I had. And then I looked down and saw a little girl on the bed. And I at first, I felt compassion for her. I could see she was in pain. And then I, I remembered it, it just came to me that, oh, of course, that's got to be me. And in the moment of thinking that thought, I was back in my body. Wow. I had no doubt about the reality of the situation, that that had been real. It had been a gift to me from God, and that it was actually something that I didn't need verification from other people to believe. And um, this was back in 1950, mm-hmm. when indeed that, the, the very word near-death experience hadn't, it wasn't going to be coined for 25 years. Right. And so it was not anything named. And yet, and I felt like most of the people that were around me would not understand it. They would think it was something else, and yet, and that, you know, they'd have to fix me in some way, because I was only six, but I remember very clearly saying, no, this is my experience, and I know it's real, so I never talked about it till I was 42 years old. And let me ask you, um, Pam, I've heard this from other people that have experienced, uh, had a near-death experience, you know, we all have memories from our past, but those that have had near-death experiences remain very vivid in your memory. Is that the same with you? Absolutely, and it never changes, unlike fish stories that get longer and longer. Oh, I've got plenty of those. <laughs> sure do, with actual fish, but yes. So it and re- you can almost hear as I tell the story that it's told from the point of view of a six-year-old, hmm. because that's indeed who I was. And, um, and, uh, and so I want to give it the essence of what it felt like to me at that time. So it's never changed, and it's been the single most powerful moment of my life and how it has impacted everything about my life and, and most particularly um, what uh, most particularly is, of course, there was no fear of death after that because I feel absolutely certain but I really am that soul that came, and I really will be that soul when I go home, and that, and that is home. Um, that sense of really being at one with God—that is absolutely beautiful. And do you, I think I know the answer to this? But can you see how that experience shaped who you were to become in absolutely. life? Can Can you share about? Growing up, and, and I don't—I'm assuming that maybe you wanted to be a doctor, but maybe you didn't before that. What What was that like as a kid when you were getting older and it was time to go to school? And mm-hmm. how did that sense of um, compassion and knowing about life after death, and maybe even having the meningitis, shape you into who you became? Well, um, for one thing, I don't know who I was before that because. That's what people who have near-death experiences often talk about, how it changes their lives. Well, I can't really remember any particular values before I was six years old. Right. So it's the only way I've ever known life. It's the only way I've known life is as a near-death experiencer. And as a child, um, actually, my, my hero was um, Albert Schweitzer, the medical missionary in Africa. Yes. So that really was my hero. Those were the kind of bad and Gandhi were the games I played as uh-huh. fantasy games. And so <laughs> I was, I really, I really uh, took in that 
being of service to other people, which is one of the things all near-death experiences do. Um, so that was a huge piece for me. Another huge piece um, that um, was kind of muddled in my brain as a small child was that I was extremely empathic with other people, and that means that I could also feel their pain. And um, it, it, it's always amazed me how cruel children can be to one another. Definitely, definitely. There is that, and I think if any if anyone else is feeling what I'm feeling, they couldn't do it because they'd be feeling what they're doing. And so I knew I was different in that way, and it wasn't until I was an adult and actually came out, as you as you will, as a new death experience, that I met other people like myself and realized that extreme sensitivity and empathy is very common to new death experiences. So that I wasn't unusual, but it was difficult being a child, really. Um, and I was always interested in meaning in life, and most kids aren't. Um, no. So that so I was a very different child, and um, I was I, I consider it sort of blessed to have not been teased and and ostracized and all that. But some of that was because I never spoke of what I felt. Right. Because it just didn't feel safe. So um, becoming an adult was easier because um, I could then become I could I could let all this unfold. That was what I had learned in my near-death experience about really just relaxing into recognizing that we're all one and that my being in the presence of God, I knew for sure all souls were and that that's really who we all are. And I didn't have to feel uh, competitive or anxious or trying to striving too hard. And so that, that sense of freedom that came with my near-death experience allowed me to really let my soul unfold and do all the parts I've done. Um, I, I, in, in my 30s, I, I, um, oh, when I turned 30, I went to medical school and um, at Baylor and um, um, became a, a family doctor after that her, my residency was in family medicine. Mm-hmm. And really enjoyed having a mind-body practice. But as then, after I did that for probably almost a decade, and then at the end, toward the end of that, I started, I, I actually, I read uh, Ken Ring's book, Heading Toward Omega, mm-hmm. about how people change with a near-death experience. And it just totally changed my life because I, I realized there were other people like me out there. And that wasn't until 1989 that I read that book. Wow. So um, until that time, I thought I was probably the only one on earth who was all that stuff. (laughs) Yep, you're alone in it. You're different. Keep quiet. I'm not talking about it. No, of course Uh, not. So uh, Yeah, so I just, uh, that was, it was a very private experience for me until I read that book. And even then, it might have been private. But I realized in reading the book that because I had become a doctor, in those days people were not nearly as aware of it as they are now. And I thought, you know, you can't just be a doctor and not say that you're also a near-death experiencer. Because that would really help the public see that these people are not crazy out there. Or they're, they're the people that you're rubbing elbows with every day when you go to your doctor or you go to the grocery store mm-hmm. or whatever. There's lots of people who've had a near-death experience out there. Well, you know, for me, uh, my show is fairly new now, and I am getting flooded with people that would like to be on the show, and I'm a yes to everybody. It just takes time. But it's amazing to me, um, professors, doctors, clergy, I mean, people that have regular jobs, all kinds of people that have um you know many have books but many have never come forth before and 
there so many more people have had near-death experiences or or something like I don't want to say like that but some um, mm-hmm. interesting experience whether it's knowing who's on the phone before the phone rings or there's some things that people have shared that they haven't come out whether it's because of fear um, what will people think and the more and more and more these stories come out I think the better it will be for humanity to know this is real and don't be afraid you're not alone right and I've seen such a huge difference in the 25 years since I've been talking about near-death experiences and people talking about it just with one another in casual conversation or just insisting on the right to have their own experience yes and have it not be called crazy right um, it's been wonderful uh, to see that to see that change in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really just the beginning and the big scheme of things to what's Absolutely. what's to come. How, what made you become a hospice physician? Well, it was it's actually it was because I was starting to um, talk about the near death experiences, and um, I'd always done some counseling, and I started getting a lot of grief counseling. Um, uh, people coming in for grief counseling and it actually it, it's kind of the way all my life has worked is that then there's the practical factor of HMOs for, and now PPOs right. we're coming into Houston and when anything is new it's always a mess right <laughs> a bureaucratic mess and so what had been a really lovely practice I thought I'd be doing all the days of my life yes it's a living hell. <laughs> uh-huh. And it was just because they were, it was just the bureaucratic matter of trying to get all this stuff done when they were trying to bring it into the first big city stuff. Sure. So I was unhappy with that, and it just, I was unhappy. And I, um, I went to bed one night, and I do this frequently, as I, um, I prayed to have an awareness during the night of how to, how to release this discomfort I was feeling at work. Whatever, and I was open to whatever spirit offered. And lo and behold, I was awakened in the middle of the night, and I call it awakened. It wasn't like I woke up, I just felt, I just felt spirit nudge me. Mm-hmm. Um, I went and got, and, 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 and it said, go get the newspaper out of the trash of the, it's the Harris County, um, Houston, um, doctor's letter, and there was an advertisement for a hospice doctor right there in my own hometown. And um, and I knew in that moment that's what I was meant to do. So I called them up the next day. They interviewed me. They loved me, and they hired me on the spot. And um, and I transitioned over the next three months, getting really good docs for my patients um, from where I was. And uh, that's how I became a hospice doctor. And how long were you a hospice doctor? I, I did that. I, I did it for four years. And then um, at that point, my husband um, wanted to uh, move to southwest Colorado. Okay. Um, and he'd been living in Houston with me for quite some time, not liking the heat in the big city. Right. It, it is hot, and it is a big city. Exactly. So so I said yes. And... Um, so we moved to Southwest Colorado, and again, I think it's that near-death experience that allows you to take life fairly lightly because you know it's one one stress in the continuum of a whole soul. Um, I thought I'd be able to do hospice. It turned out that just was never a choice. And I was kind of at sea for a while. I wrote my book um, and uh, worked as a family practice doc, but it wasn't quite was in the clinic, and it wasn't quite right. And then it, the opportunity came to uh, become the medical director of the hospital in, in, in Durango, wow. and I was able to bring in integrative medicine into the hospital and develop a wonderful touch, love, and compassion program that's a, a real model for the country. But, because until then, everybody said, oh, you can only do it in the, the medical centers. And we are no medical center here. <laughs> and so it's just, um, I've had a really, and then the time, then when that, when that got done, 
and it was just wonderful and became a central piece of the Hospital of Mercy. Um, then the Tai Chi for Health thing opened up, and so I helped to get that program started in the country. And and then this last year, I just heard spirits say, "Well, it's time to let that go." So now I'm in this place of quiet of just doing nature, as you said, you know, as you uh, said in the introduction. So I have allowed my life to flow. I from from what spirit guides me to do, and not be so afraid about security and income and success and how it might look on the outside. And I am absolutely typical of near-death experiences. I am I'm nothing special. I've had some, some great opportunities, but the, they're all moving in the same direction. Well, I think you're pretty special. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I, I do because... I know maybe your near-death experience is typical from others, but and you weren't given the choice, or maybe you were, of having it so young. But, you know, from the inside out, you've only known your life, and you've lived it the way you've been kind of called to lead it. And I wrote down a few things as you're talking, because you're just like, oh, and then... You know, I was a hospice doctor, and then came the book, and then the Hospital of Mercy, and the Touch, Love, and Compassion programs all over the country. Now, Tai Chi is programs in the country, and it's like, I'm thinking, wow, you know, and so you're living in your, your own skin, and, you know, you know you've done a good job. I hope you know that anyways, but wow, what an incredible contribution you've been. Can I ask some questions about a few of those things you mentioned? Mm-hmm. What was it like to be the hospice doctor? What did you, what did you, uh, is the word enjoy about it? Or what, what made you feel like that you made a difference there? Well, I think the thing that I, I personally love the most was that when a person, everyone I knew and especially, you know, the inpatient unit where I spent a lot of time, everyone I knew were no longer having superficial conversations. Wow. All moved beyond that. And so it was to me like souls meeting souls. And yes, I had all the competence to do the pain and symptom control, of course, that goes with the training. But the part that is just so so precious is the part of really feeling like two people are meeting at a soul-to-soul level and that I'm sitting there with them knowing that my, for myself, if I were in their place, I'd have no fear. I would just want to be sure I was comfortable until I got home. And so I think that that it really... My background, my near-death experience, really, really set me up to be, um, to have that be a perfect match for me. Did you ever share with e- either the um, people in hospice or the families about your near-death experience when you were younger? Well, it's a funny story. I didn't intend to share. I, you know, I was just doing hospice doctoring. Right. To be a soul to soul without that, but we uh, one of one of our staff members. We were an uh, interdisciplinary team. One of our team members um, thought it would be nice to have uh, something on a bulletin board featuring different staff members, so that the people who were there, who because they'd be there for a while, right? That they would get to know us as people. And so when it was my turn. It happened that I had just done an article for the Houston Post um, about near-death experiences, and it talked about me and mine, that whole article. They put it on the bulletin board. So then everybody came to know that I was someone who'd had one, Mm -hmm. because it just stayed up. It was so popular. (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) It was just something where people could ask me about. You know, they felt like, oh, this is fine to ask about, and... Because I think that was that little serendipity, that uh, the synchronicity, if you will, that happened, 
that then allowed people to open up about experiences they were having that um, that were unusual, such as as they approached death, having deceased relatives come to visit them and to see them in the room and to wonder if they're hallucinating or is this, is this for real. Wow. I was able to reassure them and had the great experience of being able to be in the room with people, with, with, I'm remembering a particular person, while he was seeing a deceased relative. And when I walked in the room, he was talking to the relative, who was, of course, I didn't see. Right. Um, I, I could see that he was, and I thought, I want to know if this is hallucination. Because nearly everybody's on pain medication. Sure, right. Um, if this is hallucination, or is it something deeper? And so I, I interrupted him and asked him what he'd had for breakfast. And he was able to tell me. He stopped the conversation, told me what he had for breakfast, told me his pain on a scale of 1 to 10, and then politely dismissed me. And what I know about hallucinations as a doctor is that someone having hallucinations cannot do that. They cannot stop their hallucination, have a, ha, answer questions in a concrete, objective way, and then go back to their hallucination. That is not the way hallucinations work. Wow. So anytime anybody says that those experiences with deceased relatives is hallucination, they just haven't done the experiment. Wow. I heard a story once, I think it's Thomas Edison, that uh, just shortly before he passed away, um, he just whispered in his physician's ear, he's just, wow, it's really beautiful there. And he was somebody very scientific of mind, and he never spoke anything unless he knew it to be true. And it was as if he was seeing into heaven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, more recently in this last year or two, uh, that's what Steve Jobs said when he got in it. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he did. Yeah. That is so encouraging. And, Pam, to have you as the doctor in that atmosphere when um, even on, though it's a soul-to-soul level, there's all the family members around that have the fear and have all you know all that stuff that happens within families when someone's close to passing away and just that you could be in that environment and bring that sense of calm and that conversation having that hanging up about your near-death experience I bet you put a whole bunch of people at peace and gave a lot of people hope I, I think it turned into a wonderful setting. It truly did because all the nurses then felt open to share their experiences they were having with patients and uh, what the patients were telling them. And so often you hear that um, patients are, I mean, patients talk to the nurse, but they never talk to the doctor. And that's just because the doctors. Well, some of it's because the doctors aren't around. Right. Some of it is the doctors really don't want to hear it because they think they have to fix it. Oh. Um, but um, it was wonderful to be in an environment where everybody, where, where, where everybody felt free to talk about it and where we discovered as a group that when people started seeing the deceased relatives, it really meant they were getting much closer to death. And in those, in those last stages of life with hospice, it's really hard to know. People say, how many days do they have? And you, anybody who tells them is just a fool. Yeah, there's <laughs> no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing. And, but, but it's a pretty good indicator when they start seeing deceased relatives that they're in their last few days of life. And so we would actually, in our checkout rounds between um, our shifts, we would talk, we would, that would be part of checkout rounds is who's seen deceased relatives. And uh, that's also, I want to just say, that's how common deceased relatives are. That not everyone sees them. In fact, we came to the point where people were saying, I know so-and-so had one. 
why can't I? Um, but it's pretty common. I'd say maybe 40, 50%. It's quite common. One of my friend's mothers just recently passed away, and um, moments before she died, she lifted her head out of off her pillow, and she just, with a smile, said, hello, hello, and she was turning her head saying, greeting the invisible and then she put her head down and passed away oh that's wonderful yeah oh Pam I love talking with you so what's the book about the book really is the book Love is the Link is um, about my own experience and um, then also the experiences that I had um, in the hospice people's individual experiences um, some experiences much like the one you just described of, of um, seeing the deceased relative there at the last minute. Um, and then I, I just recently updated it and just put in an extra chapter that kind of updates the fields of hospice near-death experience and complementary medicine um, that's gone on since, since I wrote the book the first time. Because the book itself is is people's stories. I didn't want to uh, turn it into uh, a lecture from me. I wanted right. it to be them telling, the, giving an opportunity to share their stories one more time. Well, stories I find make a difference. Um, you know, people have read books like Chicken Soup for the Soul, and to hear similar inspirational stories really, I think tell a story that sinks in uh, that hits home other mm-hmm. than someone just kind of professing their thoughts not that that's not good but back it up with some stories and I think that's probably what you're speaking of and um, people love stories and yeah. it, it, it makes such a real difference I'd love to hear um, a little bit about your touch love and compassion and what you created my dad um you'll meet him someday in heaven he's it was just an extraordinary extraordinary man and, and a giver and a wonderful person um he worked with bernie siegel when he was alive uh he had had cancer 30 years before his death and had it had disappeared after he worked with bernie siegel and he went on to helping a lot of cancer patients and aids patients and he just a real gentle soul my dad was um but where he passed away was in a hospital in Danbury Hospital in Connecticut and before that he had been a short time in hospice trying to get pain medication sorted out he had a, a pain pump installed for a broken spine due to a tumor um, but why I I'm just seeing a difference between the hospital one hospital he was in and the hospital where he passed away was such an a place that there was compassion, love, nurturing. There was a channel that had inspirational music and meditations on. On Sunday, there was a a person that came in, played the harp. Um, It was something like I didn't even expect could be in a hospital. And I don't know what you're going to say about your Touch, Love, and Compassion program, but I have a sneaky suspicion that you brought into a hospital something that wasn't there before that was very necessary uh, in nurturing so can you just share what 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 is your touch love compassion that you uh, yes, introduced I and, and to just say uh, and um, and and uh, in kind of in conversation about what you had said is I love the way that hospitals are starting to bring those things in and they're bringing them in more and more and it's wonderful at, uh, so our program at Mercy in Durango is um, has as its basis mm, helping people. I'm going to say it's because it's a the, it's the theory of it, and it's what's important is helping helping people to realize that healing lies within them. They come in for the conventional medicine, but it's when they add their own body's ability to heal, that they heal so much faster. So um, that's the theoretical basis of the, the TLC program. 
And what we what we do is we have an actual, and this is offered for free to anybody who's in the hospital who wants it. And um, it, we have a team that are trained in um, in healing therapy, which is a kind of very gentle, hands-on, hands-off uh, energy work that just helps the person come to calmness within themselves. And it's used with conscious breathing and, um, and with meditation uh, and uh, aromatherapy and, and the soft music to help a person just relax into themselves and to, um, to begin to elicit their own healing response. And when we were first developing it, um, of course, this, the administration and the doctors wanted proof that it was helpful in an objective way. Right. Um, the best way to do that is to, to use the conventional uh, measures of uh, anxiety and pain on the 1 to 10 level. Okay. So... What, uh, so we kept statistics for the first three years, and I reported them to the docs every quarter um, to prove that, indeed, when someone went in and had a TLC session, their pain level went down on the average of the business scale of 1 to 10. It went down 3 to 4 notches. That's an extreme amount of less pain. Extreme amount of less pain. And um, anxiety... If they had anxiety, it was the same way. And um, so what, what the, the nursing staff loved about it was that at the beginning, and this is how we kind of got buy-in from them, was that if they had a pa- patient who just couldn't settle, and it's what in medicine they call they were always on the, on the bell, on the, you know, always right. bringing the nurse, uh-huh. bringing the nurse. And they just couldn't get settled. They would bring in the TLC team, and it takes that it's a it's a person, but they have the cart and everything, and it it takes thirty minutes, thirty to forty five minutes for a treatment. And with the I, my selling point to them was at least for forty five minutes, they're not going to hit the bell. They've got somebody in there. It's true. So, so they were like, "Okay, Pam, I'll go for it." <laughs> and what they found though was that it worked. It wasn't just the time the TLC team was in, but for many hours afterwards, they weren't calling the nurse again. So it meant that it was not just effective in the moment, but that it lasted for hours afterwards. And it has become one of the central features of the hospital. And on those satisfaction reports, that's the thing that people most often comment on. Is, is the TLC uh, treatment. And it's changed the whole culture of the hospital, that people are kinder to one another. They um, they treat each other more like that. Wow. <laughs> you know, and it's just been a good thing. And, and it led, that this was started before a new hospital was built. Mm-hmm. It was started about four years before the new hospital was built. And when the new hospital was built, in 2006, it was built with the idea of having it be a healing environment, which was becoming all the buzzword back then. Yes. But only becoming it, we had to look it up and how to do it, so that when it was built, it, it really does have the healing atmosphere, not the, the cold uh, white walls, you know, but it, it's got a very, very home-like atmosphere. And for me, the piece de resistance was that when they built it, they did a healing labyrinth outside that is wheelchair accessible that can be used for meditation purposes in a beautiful xeriscaped garden that both the community and staff and family members and even patients can actually use the labyrinth. So it's it's a whole, it's, it's created a whole total environment that began with the healing therapy 
And this spread, this uh, TLC program spread to other hospitals, other programs? It has in some ways. I'm not, I'm not involved anymore because I start programs more than stay. That's but okay. I, That's a gift. <laughs> <laughs> but what I've heard is that some other hospitals have done it. There hasn't, uh, and I'm sure that there are ones I don't know about. Yep. Um, but it's part of the CHI, the Catholic Health Initiative group. And they always said we were the perfect storm of just the right community, the right people. Right. I don't know. I think it's more transferable than that. I but think so. But it seems that in a 72-bed hospital in a small town, it can be done and it can be sustainable. It's, it's been in operation now for, golly, a decade, over a decade. Yeah, and I remember, too, I don't remember specifically, but that was one of the services offered um when my dad was in that hospital I was telling you about. And I would just seem to think, and I'm no doctor, um, but if your body has less stress and is not in as much pain, there would be less pain medication and more comfort to the patient. And all good things stem from that. Absolutely. And and, um, patients may even go home sooner. Right be ready to go home sooner, but definitely there's less pain medication, um, and uh, and people, yeah, they do have less stress, and they heal faster. That's yeah, it's great. for sure, and there's, there's actual physiologic correlates for all that, so it's not, it's not just a placebo effect, which sometimes people ask, but I would also say placebo effects are important. That shows how p- powerful the mind is. Oh, Definitely. <laughs> No question. How did you get into Tai Chi? By accident, as almost everything happened. I actually did a favor for a friend when I was medical director of the wellness department at Mercy in Durango. Um, My friend wanted to have this new guy, Dr. Paul Lamb, who's coming to the United States from Australia, uh, teach Tai Chi for health at, at a workshop in Durango. Well, it was his first time to the United States. I never heard of the Tai Chi for Health program. And he was going to places like L.A. Mm-hmm. So she said, he said he, he's a nice man. He said he'd come if we can get 25 people to take the weekend workshop. So I uh, convinced the wellness team, um, which is what we called ourselves before TLC. We were just developing it. I convinced them to go ahead and to do this workshop. So we... We were 15 of the 25, and he was able to come. Well, I just fell in love with the Tai Chi for Health. And, um, and the early studies, and they've continued to support it more and more, showed that this is a, that, that Tai Chi can help prevent falls in older adults. And oh. as a family doc, I know that those falls in older adults lead to the disability that leads to death. Right. And so anything that I'm, and so, um, in fact, the single, the single biggest cause predictor of death in the next year for a person over 70 is a hip fracture. Sure. So it's, it's like a very big deal to prevent falls. And I loved it for myself, and it really helped the arthritis in my knees. And I, I just thought, you know, it could be a good thing for as a family doc to go around teaching teaching this and uh, do talks on it and stuff. So I got involved with Dr. Lamb in his program, um, got trained by him, and have actually taught a lot of instructor workshops and taught uh, done done talks for oh for state organizations and national organizations on why Tai Chi for older adults and how it also helps with arthritis. So, um, and that program has just sailed because it's so good. It really works. The studies are out there proving. Gosh, the latest studies show that it's a 70% reduction in falls in older adults. 770? 70. It's amazing. And so, um, so, it, so it's, it's taken the world by storm, really, and now it's been approved by the CDC as 
one of the two Tai Chi programs that is known to prevent falls. So now it's something that can get grants and everything else. So it's just been this huge thing, and it's truly helpful to people. And then, on a side note, yes, it prevents falls. There's no doubt about it. Yes, it helps with the pain and stiffness of arthritis. The studies show it. Sure, probably with balance, too. Uh, yeah, and with balance is the big thing. Balance, the reason you don't have falls is because of the balance and strength in the legs. Mm-hmm. But the big thing for me also as a near-death experiencer is that when people really do that slow, measured movement with the focus on their breath, yeah. they fall into a deeper place in themselves than they knew was possible. Oh. So they come for an exercise class, and they go home, of course, with stress reduction. But they go home with a with a deeper connection to the deeper parts of themselves. And those are the people that would never go to meditation. They don't even know they want it. Aren't you clever? <laughs> well, I know, too, um, one of the things that I talk about in my book, because I, I talk about my life after death journey, but I also have a chapter about grief and easing the pain of grief. And one of the practices is getting into the present moment. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sitting in meditation, but even out for a walk, just concentrating on the leaves or the grass or the flowers, or if you're listening to music, just kind of being one with the music, listening to the words. And, you know, my secret strategy is I too know that with the quiet mind or even focusing on the breath can tap people into um a, a larger part of themselves and um, and I believe um, kind of our divine selves and uh, that there's a magical connection when we can slow the thoughts and just be so I kind of do the same thing a little bit differently <laughs> but I want to ask you too Pam because time goes by so fast when we're talking about the powers of the mind can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with transformational hypnotherapy and what that is transformational hypnotherapy is is um, the other word for it is alchemical hypnotherapy um, and what it does is it helps people, I, the, the process of the facilitator is to help a person decide, come to what questions do they want to work on, what is the deepest question they have today, and then to go to the parts of themselves, to get in deeper into themselves, to discover the answers or clues to the answers about that question. And what I love about transformational hypnotherapy uh, versus more conventional is that it's not about what the therapist does. The therapist is really there to assist a person getting deeper into themselves. It's, it, and it's, it's not the therapist doing something to you, but it's the therapist just opening your own doors to go deeper into yourself to be able to do your own work. Um, and I was introduced to it, again, by accident. <laughs> you think these are all accidents. <laughs> I, I, I have a sneaky suspicion. You know, it's, it's funny because um, my day job is I'm a chef for race car teams, and I can literally stand on my feet 20 hours and cook like nobody's business. I have stamina and strength and and stuff. And so I very playful say that, you know, there was this message that needed to be shared on planet Earth. And whether you call it God or the universe looked down and said, well, look at this girl. Look, look how strong she is. Look what she does. Let's give it to her. And I, I get the same playful image of you um well let's give her this she'll think it's um just some accident that she fell into but we know what she does with good things she <laughs> shares them <laughs> and that's probably true because it, it, you know those these things have all been easy because they were right right in my face kind of thing yes yeah so yeah it was there was a person used to have a 
a school, ran a whole school for transformational hypnotherapy, the alchemical hypnotherapy in Denver. She moved to Pagosa and she wanted to do a class and she invited me and I thought, oh, why not? Why not? And um, so it was when it turned into this long, I mean, it's a lot of training. I don't want to dismiss it as no. a lot of training. Um, uh, but it was over, it was extensive training. But it was all here in Pagosa, which made it easy. Hmm. And um, so I could do it right at home. And um, and I have, uh, and then it's uh, done, I've been doing some of that, and then that really sort of tossed me into this interesting thing I'm, I'm particularly uh, jazzed about right now, which is the life between lives. What does that mean? Uh, yeah, that is a whole nother field developed by Michael Newton. And um, I guess I should give credit to alchemical hypnotherapy is David Quigley's work. Um, but, but so uh, the life between lives is a kind of hypnotherapy of helping a person go to before they were born and the decisions they made about what they wanted to work on in this lifetime. Cool. And I, I, I believe that. I believe that we do come for a purpose. I, I recognize that everyone does, but that's my belief, is that really and truly, we come for a purpose, and um, it's, it's, it's possible to get off course, and it's possible to not do it. The good news is if we don't do it, we'll just come back. Um, so it's, you know, it's not that heavy. But um, if to know what one's life purpose is, is to really have more of a sense of purpose and to know that everything contributes to it. And I do agree with you. I called mine accidents, but I, I think of them as synchronicities. Yeah. It's that my life's purpose was to, to early on remember who I was. And that then, therefore, opened up everything for me to do everything I've done. Uh, because knowing, knowing that stretch, that you're, you're, you're such a soul for so long, each lifetime can be a real joy and can be an opportunity to continue to, to grow and to stretch one's soul in different directions. And even when they're difficult lifetimes, we truly are stretching our souls even though it hurts in the moment. We are getting close to being time is up, but I want to just ask you to expand on that last thing you said a little bit, because there are some people right now that are going through a real, real, real tough time, whether it's loss of a loved one or just dealing with a incredible hardship or, or suffering right now. In maybe, do you have any advice that you could look at it from kind of the life between lives perspective of maybe why or or a good way that for them to get their head around um what they're going through and put it in perspective as opposed to um we we often hear so many times that um and we know personally that it's easy to become a victim and and spend oh 40 years suffering but is there a way to get somebody on track with maybe putting in perspective what they might be going through something comes to my mind and and that is that as I'm, as I'm, I've just turned 70, and I'm looking back on my life, and I've had some very difficult times. And um, when I look on those times where I thought all was lost, now from the vantage point of the, a lady who's getting older, I could see that those, those pains, that difficult time, was absolutely essential to my growth to who I was going to be in the future and that I am simply a part of the tapestry of everyone else's life and that we're all in this together uh, and that no one is alone. We're all in this together. We all, we all have our times of pain and when we're in them it can feel like it lasts forever. It sure does, and it. But you know what? It also feels like we're alone. Yeah, and we're not. We're not. Every single person on this earth has had pain and has lost someone and something and something that really mattered. 
and each of us, I think of it when it happens to me, I am taking my turn. And sometimes my turn seems like it lasts a really long time. It does, doesn't it? How about, Pam, just quickly, um, some of the people that there's a lot of relationships that have been uh, destroyed or severed with loss of a loved one. There's been marriages come apart when a child dies. There's there's a lot of friction. And can we assume that perhaps the other person might have signed up to play their role the way they are because of some learning for them and also some learning for us in this lifetime? Yes, I absolutely believe that, that we are all learning and that um, in in uh, in reincarnation we come back again and again playing different roles, same souls playing different roles in each other's lives. Um, and um, sometimes those can be very harsh roles. Yeah, and that doesn't mean, you know, I don't, I, I, I am a stand that people um, say the things they need to say when they're here on earth. They make amends, they forgive both themselves and others, um, and do your best for healing and harmony. I mean, I really am a stand for that. But I think there's many of us that try as we might, you know, other people have their own opinions and, and there's nothing we can do. And so um, I, I think it's a, a nice empowering way to just have faith and, and say, well, maybe they signed up to play this role. What, what am I getting out of it? And still be a stand for harmony. Um, and stand, and stand for oneself. Yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes relationships are meant to sever. And, um, and, and, and in the moment it can be really painful. Mm-hmm. Long run, it's in everyone's best interest. And to know that that happens as often as not and, in relationships ever. Yeah. And ultimately, in the big picture, if yeah. we don't die, it's all going to be okay. Right? Yeah, it is. We'll play these cards again with different roles. Um, like you said, if you don't get it right this time, you'll get an opportunity to do it again. So. You know. I might as well do it right this time. You might as well. Exactly. That's so funny. That gives you good reason I can not, do it to, now. <laughs> not to procrastinate. Pam, is there anything left unsaid that you're you're burning to say? Um, or we might just conclude this. Uh, any last bits of wisdom or anything coming to mind? Um, I'm just, I'm wanting to circle back to the beginning, mm-hmm. to my own near-death experience, and, and just remind us all that in the end, it's that sense of peace surrounded by God without all the details of this life. And sometimes that's a great comfort when in the middle of a whole mess of details. Yeah, can and you just, just say that again? Yeah, but just at so the end... It. When we go back home, uh-huh. we're, we are the souls that we are, surrounded by God, and all the other souls that they are, and all the strife, and all the pain, all the questions, and all the details of this life are past. They're like, we look down, and there's this stream that went through, went through some little, little piece of who we really are. And... That's all they are in the end. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful way to close the show. Pam Kircher, thank you, thank you, thank you. And your website, if I can share it, is pamkircher.com, which is P-A-M-K-I-R-C-H-E-R.com. Or on We Don't Die Radio, I have a lovely picture of Pam and a short bio about her. And just below her picture, um, you can press the play button. And as Pam said earlier, like in her book, she shares stories. And stories really do make a difference. And if this episode's made a difference for you, certainly I encourage you to listen to some of the others. Because there's some really great stories of not only why... Um, some of the guests believe in life after death but how to live a powerful life now and feel free to share 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 sharing is good so I'm going to conclude this show I really want to thank you for being here 
thank you Pam for giving you giving us your time and you're so darn inspirational and I'm so glad that um, by accident you found all those wonderful blessings that <laughs> that you've given to so many other people I just love that about you I do and for our listener thank you for listening and we'll see you soon